Anyway, let's go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking tonight at uh, and talking about the subject of the reality of the miracles of Christ. This chapter mainly is giving us a bunch of the different miracles that Jesus performed uh, in the Protestant fundamentals that they came up with you know, back in the 20s or whenever it was. One of the five fundamentals is the reality of the miracles of Christ. And we, of course, do, we do not believe these stories in the Bible are allegorical. They are literal stories. These are literal events that really happened. And, uh, in fact, in Acts 1-3, just in reference to the resurrection of Christ, it says, "...to whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs." There are some things that just count as proof. Did you know that they count carvings on rock as historical proof of certain things? I mean, why would the Gospels not be proof? We've got four different accounts. That's just in the Gospels. You know, Paul mentioned how he was seen of over 500 brethren at one time. The resurrection of Christ is one of the most provable historical events that there is. And the miracles of Christ are 100% provable. And you want to know who some of the people are who admit... I'm going to get to the Bible here. Don't worry. But you want to know uh, some people who will admit the, the reality of the miracles of Christ? That is Jews. Yes. When we were in Israel, we did an interview that might end up being in a different documentary that Brother Paul's wanting to do in the future of a, a Jewish scholar who his specialty is... Um, he like knows all the writings about ancient Jewish magic. And many of the ancient writings about ancient Jewish magic, they talk a lot about Jesus. And here's what he said. This guy who clearly looks at things in like a scholarly way. Okay? He, he never said what his personal opinion or position was. This is just as a scholar, this is what the facts show us. And that is that without a doubt, Jesus performed the miracles that he performed. He's like, here's where we can have a debate. Was his power from God or was it from magic? Because many Jews taught that, you know, when Jesus went to Egypt when he was a young child, he learned the dark arts over there and that's how he was able to do all these things. And so he said, there's no question. The miracles of Christ, there's enough documentation that without a doubt, we can declare these things as fact. They happened. He did raise people from the dead. He did perform miracles. The question is, you know, where did the power come from? And that's where faith comes in. We believe it was God that gave him that power. We believe he was God. And so uh, that it's, it's just interesting. And so the fact is, you know, you know, people who, like the atheist clowns, who deny the miracles of Christ and the reality of the Bible, they are, they're not just Bible deniers, they're history deniers. They deny facts. They deny reality, which is, again, atheism is nothing more than a mental disorder or a weird religion is what it is. And that's why atheists, too, they act like they're all about science, but they're always pro-trans. They're always pro-homo, all that stuff. And it's just proof it's a demented, God-hating religion. They believe in God just as much as we do. They just hate Him. That's all, that's all there is to it. The miracles of Christ are absolutely authentic, I mean, and they are, there has been proof in every definition of proof the miracles of Christ happen. So, before we get into this chapter where we're looking at these miracles, I want us to, 
I want to point out a few things to help us keep everything in perspective. Because remember, Matthew is sharing the testimonies of these real physical miracles Christ did as proof that he can do the spiritual miracles, which are more important. Christ did not come to just fix people's bodies. He came to fix their souls. Because every physical miracle that Jesus did on people's bodies eventually went away because those bodies eventually died. All of them. He came to save souls. That's what he ultimately came to do. And he will resurrect those bodies one of these days. But you know what? Who cares if your arm gets healed? Who cares if you're, you get your sight back? If you still die and go to hell. I would rather have salvation. You're better off plucking your eye out than, and you know, being blind than going into hell with, with two good eyes. So all these miracles that Jesus was doing during this time, this was his way of backing up his preaching that he was doing about the kingdom of God. He's going everywhere preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that we preach. And so Jesus isn't just going and telling these people that he's able to save their souls and just he's backing up what he's saying by the miracles that he's doing. And so while many individuals not only experienced the miracles and believed on Christ and were saved, Israel as a whole did not accept the gospel of the kingdom. They rejected the message even though they saw the miracles and they did, in fact, see the miracles. And there are, there are many ancient Jewish writings of people who, that hated Christ, but they did not question the miracles. You couldn't get away with questioning the miracles. Too many people saw it. What they did is they just said, like in the Bible, he cast out devils by Beelzebub. That was what they did. They, they couldn't deny the miracles. So the reality is, their problem was they rejected the gospel. And we have many examples that show the leaders did not doubt. They knew. And they were they feared because they're like, everyone's going to believe him if they hear about these miracles. And that's why they really lost it when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Even though in this story he raised the young lady from the dead, but it was like there wasn't enough witnesses. But with Lazarus, too many people saw it. And it's like every, every, the whole world's going to follow him. And that's when they really really, you know, ramp things up to try to kill him. So to sum up, what we're going to see in this next chapter is basically, uh, it's the same thing we see in our current age. We have a Savior that is fully capable of saving the world. He's capable of doing that. And while many people have believed and they have received the miracle of salvation, our world as a whole is rejecting Christ. Our world as a whole is going to miss Christ. They are going to go into tribulation and they are going to eventually suffer the wrath of God is what's going to ha- that's going to happen in our world. That that's very clear and so it's the it's the exact same thing. Okay? And so just understand just because Israel as a whole did not accept Christ, it doesn't take away from the fact that many people did receive the miracles and did receive salvation. And aren't you thankful that even though our world and our nation as a whole is rejecting Christ, we can still be a part of a remnant. We can still receive these things. And I'm very, th- I'm very thankful for that. And I'm looking for the day when we are all, you know, when Christ comes back and it's just us. That's, that's what I'm looking forward to. But today is not that day. So verse, so verse 1, let's start going through chapter 9 and looking at these miracles. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. 
And behold, they brought him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? People, and it's funny, people who always attribute bad motives to someone's work always end up revealing their own hearts. And we, we're going to see this again later in the chapter. And that not it amazing? I mean, all the things. Jesus literally just healed a guy. But what are they like, oh man, he, who does this guy is thinking he can forgive sins? Um, he just healed that guy. I think, he, I think he, we know who he is. I think we should understand who he is. You know what? He is exactly who he, he... In this case too, he's not even saying I'm God. He's not saying any of these things about himself. He, but he's putting it on display. He's proving it. He's showing it. That's exactly what he's doing here. But notice, these people are denying the spiritual message of the miracle. They didn't argue. They didn't say, hey, I think this guy was a phony. I think I saw this guy at the Benny Hinn rally. He got healed there too. Like Benny Hinn, they'll get their fakes to come in. They get their actors to come in. Nobody did that in this this story. The people knew this man. They knew that he was somebody who needed healed. They didn't question the physical miracle, but they're clearly questioning the spiritual message. And that is that Jesus can forgive sins. That shows an authority there. And, and we all, and understand too, not, there are certain things that were not fully revealed during this time. We totally get how Jesus Christ can forgive sins. We get that because He paid for sins. And one of the illustrations I use all the time when I'm out soul winning is I'll tell people, you know, it would not be right for me if whoever I'm with soul winning, I'll, I'll usually point them out, and I'll say, if they went through a rock through your window, and then I said, you know what, they don't have, to, you know, they now owe you a window, but if I said, you know what, I forgive them of their debt. Would I be just in doing that? Well, no, because not unless I am willing to pay the debt. And so the reason Jesus can forgive sin is one, because he is God, but two, he's the one that's going to pay the debt. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So in reality, in reality, if we want to get super, super technical right here, you know, when Jesus is forgiving sins before he has paid for sins on the cross, you know what he's doing? He's basically telling these people, you know what? Your sin is on my account. He, you know, he's like, I'll, 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 he's putting it on credit with himself as the guarantee. And he's always going to come through on his debts. That's what he's doing. I, yeah, you owe a debt right now, but I forgive you. In other words, that's now my debt. And Jesus paid for that on the cross. So if we want to get real technical, that's what Jesus was doing. So either way, he absolutely had the ability, he had the authority to do this. But these scribes, they threw a fit about it. And he said in verse 5, For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. I mean, isn't it easy to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee? What's easier? To say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or arise and walk? Why aren't you talking about that? I told him to arise and walk, and he was able to get up and do it. What may, why are you doubting my ability to forgive sins? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. This is him proving I can forgive sins. I just told this man who was sick of the palsy to get up and walk. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled 
and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. And so the physical miracles always were proof Jesus had the power and authority to do the spiritual miracles. And in this case, Jesus tells us exactly what that is. He doesn't always. He doesn't always. And even in this story, I think we can figure out the spiritual message. But sometimes Jesus would tell us. And right here, He is proving to them by healing this man that He can forgive sins. Now, this is important too because our Rukmanite friends... I mean, or they're not friends, enemies, or Rukmanite enemies, okay? They act like the gospel of the kingdom is different than the gospel that Paul preached. But we believe that the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of Paul and the gospel of Christ, and we believe it's one, we believe in one gospel. That's exactly what we believe. And what's one of the most important things about the gospel that we preach, that Paul preached, and that is that people need forgiveness of sins. And Jesus has been going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so you know what he's doing? He is doing miracles that prove his gospel. And part of his gospel is I can forgive your sins. And that's exactly what the message was of this miracle. So just more proof, more evidence that Jesus' gospel and Paul's gospel are all the same. And it's ridiculous we even have to bring that up. But we're Baptists. We're King James only Baptists. And the King James only Baptist movement has been infiltrated by dispensationalists. And they, they teach foolish heresy like this. And there's a lot of good churches where this kind of thing is creeping in and absolutely ruining the churches. So we're going to make sure uh, we always remain aware of this kind of teaching and are ready to just absolutely crush it anytime it rears its ugly head up. So, but uh, miracles like this too, though, This is why we are able, with great confidence, to go tell everyone that they can be saved without making them give us a list of sins that they're guilty of. Have you you ever done that before? Just like, well, before we see if salvation applies to you, we need a checklist, all right? Have you committed this sin? We don't do that. You know what we do? when When you say Christ can forgive you of your sin... Jesus died and paid for your sins. That includes all sins. And so we don't even need to ask. And if anybody thinks of a really big sin or something like that, all you just need to think about, you know what? Jesus was able to tell somebody sick of the palsy, rise up and walk. He was able to raise the dead. I think he can forgive that sin. He paid for all sins on the cross. And so we we should be able to do this with great confidence. Verse 9, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom and he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him and it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, this also, this is in here for a reason. Okay? Jesus goes and calls Matthew, one of the disciples. In fact, the man who wrote the book that we're reading right now. He goes and sitting at the receipt of custom, a publican, an IRS agent. We all hate these people. But notice, and all these people hated the IRS back then too. It's just a universal thing everybody hates the tax collector 
It's all, they always get the worst of the worst. But notice, when all these people are throwing a fit about it, Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And obviously, they were all sinners. But the, re- the truth is, Christ can't forgive you if you won't rec- recognize the fact that you are sinful. And that's why, too, that's why many people, when they talk about repenting of sins, they mean, well, you need to recognize that you're sinful. And I think a lot of people who teach that, too, are especially, you know, saying that in context of they often are witnessing to religious people, especially if you're in Catholic territory, you know, like we are. In Catholic territory, you've got a lot of people who don't see themselves as sinful enough to go to hell. They think, I'm a good person. Those people need to realize that, no, you're a lot worse than you think. You, and you need to recognize that sin. And I think that's a terrible way to put it. But that's, that's why a lot of people say that. That's what, a lot of, that's what a lot of people mean. And so when Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous but sinners, he's not saying that there's some righteous. That's not, what he's, that's not what he's saying. But he can't do a thing for somebody who does not recognize their sinful condition. And notice what he said too. He said, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. This means something. And then watch this. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. What, what does that mean? Um, I, think, I, think it was Sunday, I'm, I know I talked about this recently. I don't know if it was Sunday morning or Sunday night. But I talked about how you know, Christ is tired of all the offerings. People, they want to just keep bringing all these offerings, thinking if I just go and I'll sacrifice all these animals and then I'm all good. No. God does not want us thinking that we somehow contributed to our salvation. He said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. If He's going to save us, it, it has to be because He was merciful. That needs to be why. He wants us to recognize, hey, the only reason I'm getting saved is because I have a merciful high priest, because God loves me, Jesus paid for my sins, I have nothing that I can bring. What's the song say? Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. That's what God wants. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. When you come trying to contribute to your salvation, when you come thinking, I'm good, I got baptized, I go to church, I give offerings, I do any of these things. No, God doesn't want that. God's sick of your sacrifices. God's fed up with those things. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And so these people like Matthew, these publicans, they had no problem recognizing the fact that they were sinful and in need of a Savior. But these Pharisees, they couldn't figure it out. And so notice when it comes to Jesus recruiting followers, He doesn't go to the Pharisees. You know, none of the disciples were Pharisees. None of the twelve were Pharisees. But one of them was a publican. One of them was a tax collector. And so, and that's an amazing thing. And, then, and so watch this. Because this is a reminder too, that the only people who God will even accept as servants in His kingdom are those who've been cleansed by Christ. Not people who've been cleansed through the things of the law. What did, what did Jesus tell Israel in Isaiah? All your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's what He thought about it. And so Jesus was, he was not going to accept servants in His kingdom who had only been cleansed by the things of the law. He would accept people, though, who had been cleansed by his blood. And it didn't seem to matter 
what their past was. It didn't seem to matter what their social standing was or anything like that. If they believed on him, they, he would save them and he would make them able. I mean, and think, Matthew literally wrote the book that we're preaching from tonight. What an amazing testimony that is. And you know who gets all the credit for that? Jesus. Jesus gets all the credit. You notice there's scribes mentioned in this chapter. The scribes were the ones confronting Jesus for things. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think Jesus would choose a scribe to be the one to write his gospel? But he didn't choose a scribe. You know who he chose? He chose the publican. The, he chose the publican, not the scribes that were all thinking we're all good. This guy is going against the law. This guy is saying he has the authority to forgive sins. When he doesn't, we're the scribes. We know the law. No, Jesus didn't use the scribes in these stories. He used the publican. Why? Because the publican was cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so verse 14, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. No man putteth a piece of a new cloth into an old garment for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. Now, I preached a whole message on this. It, it was a while back. But Jesus is teaching a a very specific lesson here. I've heard a lot of people just take that phrase, you know, don't put new wine in old bottles, whatever, and then they just kind of do whatever they need to do with it. It's usually, it's an old versus new thing, okay? And uh, it's, a, it's a commonly used verse in an old past conference. Old's better than the new, amen. But I've heard it used in new IB circles that new's better than the old, amen. You know, it's just like, hey, I think we're, I think we're all missing the point here, okay? There's something, let, let, let's... If you want to use illustrations, that's fine. Let's talk about what Jesus was talking about here. Okay, What's Jesus trying to get across when he says this here? Because I think there's a really good application here. And he's basically showing that things like fasting, there, and, and this is just one example. I think we could use others too, but specifically fasting is what was brought up. They're asking, why do the Pharisees always fast, but your disciples don't? And Jesus is showing here, that we shouldn't take things like fasting and do them just for the sake of doing them. You know, uh, there are things that we do when there is a need. There is a time to fast, but there's, it's not all the time. You know, we need to eat too. You know, like there's a time for war, a time for peace. There's a time to, uh, you know, there's a time to mourn, time to dance. I won't get all those right, but you understand to everything, there is a season and a time. And so the, the truth is, with all the things that the disciples were doing during this time, we saw, I think it was last week, how, I mean, Jesus was getting weary from all they're doing. I mean, they are on a brutal mission going and preaching the gospel all over the place. They're walking everywhere. They're traveling around. They're doing all this work. And it would not have been a good idea to fast during that time. But, you know, the Pharisees, they had a practice of fasting often. I don't know how often they did it. But, obviously, they made a big deal about that. But, you know, it, it wouldn't have been practical for the disciples to be fasting 
and all the times they're doing these things. You know, when we have our big uh, soul winning thing in Louisiana, you know, that's not a time. I, I shouldn't declare a fast during a big three-day soul winning thing. You know, people are going to be fainting in the way. People, you know, people are going to be passing out. You know, we, should, we shouldn't do stuff that could potentially hurt people. We don't want to take people to their breaking point. That's why you don't put new wine into old bottles. If you do, the bottles might burst. And often, we can, if we're not careful, we can start doing religious things just to do them and actually end up hurting somebody in the process, and we don't need to do that. And that's why we need to be careful as Christians, you know, or as you know, seasoned Christians, you could say, as mature Christians, when new people come into the church, you know, it's hard enough being a good Christian in this day and age. Even if you've been saved for a long time, there's some real challenges. And a lot of times new people, they can come into a church and then we start expecting them to be just like us overnight. We got to watch out for that. You know what we might be doing? We might be putting new wine in old bottles. And if we do that, we might take them to a breaking point and we might hurt them. And so Jesus is basically just, he's answering here why his disciples aren't fasting. If he had them fasting with all the work that they were doing, his disciples are going to be passing out and fainting and they're not going to be able to, they're not going to be able to physically handle it. And so it's all about just, you know, it's okay for us to use common sense. That's what it comes down to. It's okay for us to use common sense. One of the challenges that we might do, uh, you know, during this year, you know, we might have uh, different fasting challenges that we do. But you know what? If we've got some person in the church that's got some diabetic issues or something like that, and, you know, where it could potentially mess them up and they pass out because their blood sugar gets out of whack, we don't want to kill anybody. That's not the point. Okay? Now, the truth is, most of us can handle it. You know, most of us will be fine. Most of us would do some good, you know, maybe go a day without eating, but we don't want to kill anybody. You know, we might even do, one of, the, one of the things I want to do too this year is I want to encourage people to set some personal records for like doors knocked in one day or hours out soloing. Just, just things to motivate yourself. Again, not, th- not anything we're going to do so we can beat our chest. Just it's good to motivate ourselves. But, you know, do you all think I'm going to try to, like, get Miss Hazel and see how many doors we can go get her to knock on a Sunday afternoon? Listen, once you get into your 90s, we're just glad you come to church. We're real glad you come to church. We're just, I'm going to be glad if I'm alive when, I, when I'm in my 90s. But obviously, you know, there's, it, it would be dumb for us to try to make everybody do that. Well, we, I believe everybody's equal and you treat everybody the same. Like, no, some people are going to get privileges. You know, because that, that would not be practical to do something like that. So it's just, it's common sense. Okay. It's, it's common sense when it comes to these things. You know, we don't, it, it wouldn't be right for me to just like, you know what? I've decided one of the challenges I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage everyone to listen to a four hour sermon and I'm going to preach it and it's this Sunday and everybody be able to handle it and kids, you all better behave. You know, I, I'll bet most of these kids wouldn't do real well in a four hour sermon. Especially Hannah back there. She doesn't do good in a 45-minute one. But, you know, so, uh, again, just, it's, it's okay for us to use common sense. And sometimes, too, and, and I think Baptists are some of the worst. We do. We're always just beating our chest about how hardcore we are in different things. And we can start doing things for the sake of just doing them. And that's not what God wants. That's not the purpose. And, and again, things like fasting, there's a time for it. 
but you don't have to do it all the time. You know, we don't need, and we definitely don't want to take people to a breaking point. I don't think that's good. And so often we do, we put great emphasis on the importance of doing things that are definitely good to do, but these things are not to be done in such a rigid, ceremonial, religious way. They should be done from the heart. It's like church attendance. I am all about church attendance. I'm all about that, but we can, we can become so hardcore on it. You know, some places are so bad. I mean, they're pressuring women to go back to church the day after they had a baby. And it's like, that's dumb. Okay. I, I don't even make my wife do that. Okay. I, I think that's, that's really, oh, well, you know, not, don't forsake the assembling. Well, I don't think I ought to forsake the assembling, but you know, if there's a big snowstorm coming and you know, you're going to have big drifts and things, you're going to be risking your family's life. I think it's okay for you to stay home. I, I, I really do. You know why? Because if we make you go to church every time, no matter what, no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening, we might be putting some new wine in old bottles. And I think that's what would be happening too. Uh, and, and I think that happens in some places. And I, I don't think that's necessary. We're not doing it just for the sake of doing it. We can do that with Bible reading. You can put too much on people, soul winning, you know, church attendance. You know, let's not, let's not expect too much from people until the point where we're pressuring them and we just make them give up and quit. We should always just encourage anybody on anything they're doing. If you see people making an effort, you should be encouraging them. You should be cheering them on. That's all I want to see. If I just see an effort, I'm happy. That, that's all I want is just an effort. Don't be guilt tripping people into doing certain things. And so there are, there's certain benefits for an, for some individuals. I think there's benefits to having a strict routine. Some people need a strict routine to keep them doing certain things. But when we only do these things out of routine or out of religious or traditional performance, they can become very vain and empty. And that's not right either. We've all got to figure out what we've got to do for ourselves to keep ourselves in line. And I, and I know what I need for me. You've got to figure out what you need for you. But what I need for me might not be the same as what you need for yourself. And you've got to learn to manage your own life in these areas. And we need to be careful not to take people to a breaking point. So th- I think this is an example here, what Jesus is saying. This is showing how he is being a merciful high priest. He's already been tempted in all points like as they were, you know, without sin. So he understands what he's asking of these people. And so he's using some wisdom here. He's like, I'm not going to make my disciples fast right now. And there are, as, as a pastor, there's a certain things too you know, I'm not going to make my family do. You know, there's been people too who, again, don't know what they're doing. And I have never, ever criticized anybody in the church that ever I've gone to church with for having higher standards than me in some area. But if you think I am going to, you know, put an, your expectation on my family when I don't think it's necessary, you're crazy. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do what I think is best for my family. I'm going to make those choices. You need to do the same thing when it comes to your family. You need to make the choices uh, and you need to make sure that you, you know, take their welfare into consideration. You know, again, I'm all for being a hardcore soul winner and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you're always remember your wife's the weaker vessel. You might be able to go out on 12 hour soul winning straight or something like that, but your wife might not be able to. And don't treat her like a bad Christian if she doesn't especially if she's carrying a kid around through the whole thing too. Okay, so just you know, keep those things in mind. Jesus did that same thing. 
Jesus, and we're going to see some examples of that too. He was always looking at the multitudes and thinking about the physical needs. We're going to see a little bit later, he's concerned about their physical needs when they weren't. He, he had enough wisdom. He knew better than they did for themselves. And he cared. He cared what was going on with them. And we need to care about other people. We need to understand, hey, if these things are hard for me, it's probably hard for them. And it might be even harder for them. And so, you know what? I'm going to cut them some slack. I'm going to give them a break. I am not going to expect them. I'm not going to expect everyone to be super Christian like I think I am. I'm going to let, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be merciful. That's how Jesus was. So verse 18, while he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshiped him saying, my daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. And this is big too, because Jesus hasn't raised anybody from the dead yet, but this man showed he had great faith. He's like, I've seen what you're doing. You can raise my daughter from the dead. And then on the way to do this miracle, verse 20, and behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about. And when he saw her, he said, daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that very hour. And this woman... With having an issue of blood, this was what's cool about this. Okay, this is not a prayer shawl story. A lot of Baptist preachers are preaching Jesus was wearing a prayer shawl, and that's what the hem of the garment's all Don't get me going on that. Do not get me going on that. That is a bunch of foolish Hebrew roots nonsense. Let me tell you something. There was literally nothing special about the garment that Jesus was wearing. There was something very special, though, about who was wearing the garment. And there was also something very special about the faith of this woman who touched the garment. That was the ingredients. The ingredients was not this magical Jewish prayer shawl with all these colors that represent Jewish stuff and all that nonsense that they like to talk about. It was all Jesus. Who was wearing it? And the faith that she had in Jesus... That's where this miracle came from. But what's, here's what's cool about this miracle. This woman having an issue of blood, she is ceremonially unclean. She touches Christ. He's ceremonially unclean. Ceremonially unclean. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But you know what? Usually, if something unclean touches something clean, the clean becomes unclean. Except for with Jesus. When the unclean touches the clean, or whenever the clean would touch the unclean with Christ the unclean will become clean. Again, there's an important message there too. Because we are, we are all unclean. But when Christ indwells us, He doesn't become unclean, we become clean. There's, there's definitely a message there. And we're not going to take time, but if you go back to Leviticus 15, it gives the law about a woman that has an issue, and if the issue in her flesh be blood, it talks about her being put apart. Seven days. It talks about everything she touches being unclean. And so, in this story, Jesus should have become unclean, but He didn't. You know why? Because Jesus couldn't sin. Jesus can't be unclean. And that, that and so right there, you could preach a whole message just on that. We're not going to take time to do it. So, verse 23, When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making noise, He said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. 
Aren't you glad that Christ does not base what He does for us as individuals off of the faith of all of those around us? Aren't you glad that we don't have to, He doesn't include us in the wickedness and the unbelief of America? Aren't we glad that even though we live in this world, when He comes to pour His wrath out on this world, we will be separated from the world first? I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. Because this man did. You know, if it had been me, you know, and all of a sudden all these people are laughing like that, it's like, fine, you know what? No miracle here today. But you know what? This man did have faith. And so thankfully, Jesus went ahead and He did it for him. And it says... But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose, and the fame hereof went abroad into all the land. And so even though there were many witnesses, people still didn't believe. Now, everybody knew the girl was alive. I mean, again, all these people that had laughed at him, they knew she was dead, which is why they were laughing. They're like, yeah, she's definitely dead. So, yeah, you might have been able to heal people, but you're not going to be able to raise somebody from the dead. But he did it. Everybody knew it, but it didn't mean everyone accepted the spiritual message, which is ultimately what Jesus was doing. He was going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And you do. You know, you have your Greg Locke clowns and the Benny Hens and all these people that are trying to do all these healings and things today. And they don't even understand the fact that the whole point of Jesus going and preaching the gospel and doing the healings, that's him giving proof that he can do the spiritual things. Why is why are those miracles not good enough? Why are these clowns insisting on more miracles that can be done at their will rather you know rather than God's will? No, these are the miracles and they are recorded, they are proven, they are and, and they should be good enough. And we do not have the right to go around demanding God do what we want. So we can, so we will believe. That's not how it works. God is not a puppet on our strings that we make, we, we gotta make Him dance for us before we will do what He says. No. We need to believe the testimony that He gave us and we need to just follow that. But, um, but yet raising the dead without a doubt shows the ability not only to save someone's soul, but also to raise them up at the last day. Because that is a major part of the gospel, something that has been being taught since the days of Job. Job believed in a physical resurrection. And so Jesus raising people from the dead, not only does it show, hey, I can raise you spiritually right now, but anyone who gets raised spiritually is going to get raised at the resurrection of the last day that they were all well aware of during that time. That was something they believed in, something that was written about, and the prophets, Daniel wrote about it, Daniel chapter 12. Ezekiel wrote about it in Ezekiel chapter 37. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 37 is about people coming out of their graves. Not the UN declaring Israel a nation in 1948. I'm sorry, but no, I believe it's about people coming out of their graves. That's what I believe. And so Jesus is proving he can do that when he's raising people from the dead. So verse 27, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed Him, crying and saying, Thou Son of David, have mercy on us. And when He was come into the house, the blind men came to Him, and Jesus said unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. And they say to Him, Yea, Lord. Then He touched their, he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. 
And notice that phrase, according to your faith, be it unto you. That's important. I wonder how much of God's power that we see put on display is based on according to our faith. I wonder. Well, I've never seen any miracles. Well, maybe it's because God's doing things according to your faith. We ever thought about that for a little bit? That's probably the case for probably all of us. So if you're not seeing any miracles, maybe it's because you haven't got any faith. I don't know. I, I think there's a message there. Like I said, this, this is a tough thing about preaching through Matthew. Pretty much every verse you can do a sermon on. And it's, it's hard to just not stop and start preaching everyone. But I want to quickly get to the rest of this. But healing the blind, too, I believe shows his ability to help people see the truths of the Scripture if they will have faith. If people will have faith, they will see the truth of the Scripture. They will understand the spiritual things. The natural man cannot receive the things of the, spiritual, of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. So what does a person have to do to become spiritual? Well, you've got to have faith in the Gospel first. If you're not willing to believe the Gospel, if you're not willing to put your faith there, then you're not going to get your sight restored. You're not to where you can see the spiritual. And I believe, I believe that's the message of making the blind to see. I think that's uh, that, the message there is the spiritual understanding that we get of the things of the Word of God. And have you ever seen, too, how some people just can't get a hold of spiritual truths? Well, have you ever tried to explain color to somebody who's never seen? Have you ever thought about that? How do you explain color to somebody who's never seen a thing, who's been blind from their birth? How do you explain spiritual things to somebody who's spiritually dead? You can't do it. So what people have to do, they've got to put their faith in Christ, and then he will, he will give them their sight. And, and I believe that's the message there. So, um, and notice too how he told these people, see that no man know it. And I do think it's interesting how sometimes Jesus would tell people not to tell others what he did. And I think, I, I personally think the purpose of this was Jesus always was showing prudence and he was very aware of his surroundings. And I think he would be, he was often careful to not do things that would put himself in danger. He also didn't want to create so much hype that would, things would just kind of turn to chaos, so, which is what uh, would, would kind of ha- would, which does happen a little bit. Because we've already seen how things have been physically taking a toll on him. We saw that in the last chapter. And he may have known that if this fame keeps growing like it is, he's going to be completely overwhelmed. And so in verse 32, and we're going to see an example of this here in a little bit, in verse 32, it says, And they went out, and behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. Okay? And, and this doesn't mean every person who's not able to speak just has a devil. That's a mistake a lot of people make, too. They'll see these things, and then they start declaring everybody just demon-possessed. And it's just like, bless your messed up heart. But you've know, you, you got to watch out for that stuff. Okay, Please, nobody in this church, if some poor lady ever comes to church like, you know, my child's got this speech problem or something, like tell her her child's demon-possessed or something. like that. that is awful. Don't be like Greg Locke and talking about autism being like demon-possessed or something, or like having a devil. It's like, please don't do stuff like that. That is so messed up. You have no right. You have no authority. You, you have no reason. That is nothing more than your uneducated opinion causing you to say that. And what a shameful thing it is when people do stuff like that. But again... In this case, 
In this case, the man did. He was possessed with the devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. And so this was a very blasphemous thing to say. But this also showed the Jews absolutely knew his miracles were real. Well, we can't deny the miracle, so let's question the authority that he does the miracle by. They had zero evidence or reason to think Jesus was doing these miracles by anything other than what he was claiming. Was it, what was he saying that made him think it was Beelzebub? What did he do? There, there was absolutely no reason for them to believe that. He's speaking the Word of God. He's speaking the things that God told him to speak. Nothing he is saying is going against the Scriptures. It's actually fulfilling the Scriptures. So this is just a railing accusation that they are making against him. And it was just because they, again, they had a spiritual problem. They just personally needed him to be bad. So this is them again projecting their own wickedness on Christ. So verse 35, And they went about the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, watch this, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And I think this is why Jesus was telling him not to tell people. His fame was growing so much. People are foolishly and recklessly following him everywhere. You can't have just a multitude of people going and following out in the wilderness like that when there's, when there's no food. People are going to get tired. And so he sees all these people following him when it just, the, the physical things that are needed are not there. They're not available. Now, later, we will see him do a miracle of feeding a multitude. But at the same time, Jesus did not purposefully lead people into dangerous situations. He often was compassionate when they ignorantly got themselves in dangerous situations. But he did not ask them to do these things. We are not supposed to tempt God. God does not want us going and purposefully putting ourselves in foolish situations. And I've heard preachers too at missions conferences where they basically tell people to be reckless with their finances. You know, we need everybody to fill out your commitment cards and I want you to make a commitment that you can't afford. That way God's got to do a miracle. That's called tempting God, my friend. We're not supposed to do that. That is not what God has called us to do. And so Jesus... When all this is going on, he understands that this is, this is not going to be a good situation for these people. And so he, uh, he didn't want them, you know, he was telling people, don't tell anybody what I did. And so that's what we're seeing here is what Jesus was afraid was going to happen, but he had compassion. And then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Look at all this need. These people are following me because they have a need. But we just don't have enough laborers for all the needs that these people have. And he said, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And you know, and I think it's interesting in this chapter too, we see him gathering laborers like Matthew, a sorry guy, but one that he was able to cleanse. And so I do, I believe this is more evidence for why Jesus sometimes would tell people not to share what he did. There are, there, there are appropriate responses 
to good and exciting things that happen. But there's often, too, overreactions where people start getting careless and reckless. And that's what ends up happening here. People were so excited about what was going on, they started putting themselves in an unsustainable situation. And I don't believe we should do that. I, I, don't, think, I don't think as Christians we should do that. I don't think we ought to just be going as a church and we're, we believe God's going to do such great things, we're just going to go and we're going to run up all this debt and just you know, then God's going to have to do something about it. No, I, I don't believe in that mentality. I don't believe in that philosophy. But even Jesus did not pur- pur- purposefully lead people into a situation where they needed a miracle. And we shouldn't do that either. That is tempting God. And do not take Christ's compassion on the ignorant as an excuse for stupidity. And so... With that, let's close the word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for this chapter. We thank You for the many miracles You did that, Lord, are encouraging, not just because we might have a physical need someday, but because we do have spiritual needs. And we thank You that uh, we can look at these stories and it proves to us that You can do the spiritual. And I pray You'll help us to focus on that message that You really wanted to get across and help us to do our part to spread that message and to be laborers in Your harvest. In Your name we pray. Amen.